Good morning. How are you doing? How's your practice? Great. So uh, my spiritual director asked, um, how's your connection to source? Ah. How's your connection to source? So I did the um, noon communion here this uh, past week. And uh, somebody asked me uh, afterwards, said, you're always talking about Richard Rohr. And um, how many of you get Rohr's daily emails? Wow. Did you read today's? I just think it's kind of uncanny how um, the two of us have been tracking the way that we have. I'm not stealing his material. He's not stealing mine either. But uh, somebody asked me, what is Roar's best book? And he's written many, but I think this is the best. Everything Belongs. And uh, it's a book about contemplative prayer or about spiritual practice. Uh, he's, but if you get his daily emails, um, you will eventually probably get the content of most everything he's done, I think. Um, but you should also keep this um, on your list. Jim Hollis's um, book on living the examined life. And if you don't have this, Always We Begin Again. This book is now even available on your Kindle app. Uh, you can get that. This is, um, this is an updated version of the Benedictine rule. And it was written by a, a lawyer, don't let that put you off, uh, who's, um, I think he's an Episcopal lay person in Memphis, Tennessee. And... Um, Many of you have heard the story before, but there was a man here in this church whose wife died very unexpectedly a number of years ago. And about a year after her death, he and I had lunch, and I asked him how he was doing, and he said, I'm doing okay. And I said, if you had to put um, a reason for your being saying that you're doing okay, what would it be? And he said, uh, well, somebody gave me a copy of a book. And I've used it, and it's been very helpful. And I said, well, tell me what it is. He said, no, I'll, I'll get your copy. And I said, no, I will get it myself. And he said, when you go, and you know this, buy three copies, so you, uh, you will give two of them away. And uh, I, I highly recommend that book to you. Okay, no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So I need to get an idea of um, <clears throat> who I'm speaking to. How many of you who are here today consider yourself relatively new to ordinary life? That is, you've only been coming six months or so, but you're how many of you are relatively new? Oh, I can start repeating myself. Okay. <laughs> How many of you consider yourself longtime attendees of Ordinary Life? Most of you, they still come back. <laughs> wow. So I have been teaching Ordinary Life since June of 1998. 
I have been teaching Ordinary Life since June of 1998, and that's the first time I've repeated myself. <laughs> that's 21 years. And I am shooting for 21 more because, well, <clears throat> because it looks like we're in for a hell of a ride, you know, and the, what's coming up in our world and our country. Um, there are times, however, when I approach this time and I think, what else have I got to say? I mean, besides, I am speaking to some of the smartest people I know. What else do they need to hear? What else could they possibly want? And then there are times in my reading and reflecting and my study and interacting with people, and as I look what's going on in our world and culture, and I think, you know, another 20 years isn't enough time. My, my sense during this time uh, when I'm having that kind of response is not rats I have to teach next Sunday, but wow, I get to teach. And um, I have taught and will continue to teach that the values of peace, love, joy, patience, and humility are values that are profoundly needed in this world. And further, we are the ones, you are the ones who um, are given the opportunity to experience these things in deeper, wiser ways and um, more useful ways in an ongoing way because we are continuing to grow and then we get the opportunity to, to express these values in the various worlds that we go to when we leave here. Somebody asked me um, after one of the recent mass shootings, they said, what's next? And uh, my response is, this is. This moment is next. And, and uh, our, our task is to be here embracing what is with compassion and kindness. And, and whatever else you hear today, you just heard this class in Ascendance, being here, embracing what is with compassion. I have also believed that using Jesus and his teachings as a guide light is essential for our journey, and there are at least two reasons for this. I asked a guy recently who had a what seemed to me to be an older child. Uh, I said, why is your child still in diapers? And he said, two reasons. Number one and number two. And... Uh, <laughs> So I use Jesus for at least two reasons. One is because we in the Western world are in a culture that is Jesus-obsessed. Whether it's conscious all the time or not, it is there. Marcus Borg, who has spoken, Marcus is now deceased a few years, but he's spoken in this room numerous occasions, and he began this, his last book, on Jesus. He was a Jesus scholar, member of the Jesus Seminar. And this is the way this book of his on Jesus begins. We live in a Christ-haunted and Christ-forgetting culture. So wrote Walker Percy over 30 years ago at the beginning of his novel, Love and Ruins. Quote, 
now in these dread latter days of the old, violent, beloved USA and of the Christ-forgetting and Christ-haunted, death-dealing Western world, I came to myself in a grove of young pines. Borg goes on. This passage strikes, me a more, strikes a more ominous tone than I intend, but its description of our culture rings true. Even as we forget Jesus in many ways, we are fascinated by him. So this book that Borg wrote was published in 2006. Now, in 2006, we were in the midst of a big hubbub among religious people and moviegoers because Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, had just been released. And we were also in the aftermath of the popularity of Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, which stayed on the bestseller list for two years and stirred up all sorts of things. So we are in this focus on Jesus because of that. And also, I have taught with the hope and expectation that ours would become a better world. I have thought and hoped that we would see the evidence of growth and peace, love, joy, patience, and humility. And yet, I had a man tell me in all seriousness this week, quote, next when next fall comes, and what he was referring to as the 2020 election, I'm carrying a gun with me every day. It's getting crazy out there. And that made me feel better already. <laughs> Safer, you know. In a study that was done less than a year ago, and I'm quoting now, 76% of people globally believe their country is divided and 59% believe it is more divided today than it was 10 years ago. So the evidence is clear that people feel alienated from others. Just look at our own Congress. Now, everybody knows that we need to do something about immigration, poverty, health care, climate change, but we don't seem to have the cultural wisdom either to cooperate or to get motivated to do it. And it's my belief, and I think I can back this up, that Jesus was a teacher of love, forgiveness, compassion, inclusion, nonviolence, and he had this vision for the world, which he called the kingdom of God. And one of the greatest misteachings that the church has done is to teach that this kingdom is something that is off out there somewhere. Uh, and even more erroneous, the belief that it's something that you get to after you die, if you play by the right set of rules. To Jesus, the kingdom of God was a vision of a world organized so as to urge and enable human beings to respect and to care for each other, and so to promote the well-being of everyone. But this is not the kind of world we live in. Further, the religion that calls itself Christian has had a long history of being violent, of persecuting others, right up until this very moment. And although our understandings of what we mean when we use the word God 
have changed significantly. I'll say more about that in a moment. I have never really understood why Jews, Muslims, and Christians, all who claim to worship the same God, have to kill each other. Now, we can't overlook the fact, and uh, we're going to talk about this today, is that Jesus himself was a troublemaker. I have in these talks been using the questions of Jesus as a guide for navigating the territory between the world that no longer exists and the one that I believe everyone in their hearts hopes for. And so here are the passages that contain the two questions we're going to look at, one today and one next Sunday. I've come to start a fire on this earth. And how I wish it were blazing right now. I've come to change everything, to turn everything right sides up, how I long for it to be finished. Do you think that I came to soothe things over and make everything nice? No, I have come to disrupt and confront. From now on, when you find five in a house, it will be three against two and two against three. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against bride, bride against mother-in-law. Kind of sounds like Thanksgiving dinner in a lot of houses now, <laughs> doesn't it? And then he turned to the crowd and said, when you see clouds coming in from the west, you say, storm's coming. And you're right. And when the wind comes out of the south, you say, this will be a hot one. And you're right. Frauds. You know how to tell a change in the weather, so how, why don't you know how to interpret the present time? Do you think that I have come to smooth things over? Well, frankly, yes. I mean, seriously, why can't we all just get along? Is it wrong to live with the conviction that if we're truly part of each other and if we see that we're truly part of each other, that we're really interconnected, uh, that we would learn that what we do to someone is what we're doing to ourselves. What about this business of teaching and living that the decisions we make right in this moment, individually and collectively, should be made with a view to how those decisions will be lived out seven generations from now, because they will. If we put Jesus' teachings into practice, if we put the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh or the Dalai Lama into practice, won't we have peace? And then Jesus goes on, you know how to read weather maps. So why don't you know how to read the signs of the time? Well, in our defense, some of us are cynics. We think it's too late, that it's no use, that we have no power. We see what's going on, but we don't think we have any influence on making a change. I mean, you can't fight City Hall, you know that. Some of us are really pretty protected from knowing what goes on in the world. We, we read a headline in the paper that 740,000 have fled Myanmar, now live in the largest refugee camp on the planet in Bangladesh. 
But we don't really experience this on a daily basis. It's out of sight, out of mind. We understand that children are being detained in some sort of facilities at our southern border, but we really don't know the specifics. And besides, what can we actually do? Some of us are doing the best we can to keep our heads above water right now. We have trouble in our jobs, trouble in our families, our marriage. So please don't put a guilt trip on us. Don't scare us. And besides, Jesus, just last week, you said don't be anxious. Can't you be consistent? Well, I think Jesus is normally consistent. Our egos don't hear it that way. That's probably the reason the primary metaphors for conversion have to do with waking up, seeing, hearing what's really going on. Now, I think as a spiritual teacher, I have two sacred obligations. And these are to do all in my power to keep those who hear or read my words free for God. And the second is to keep God free for people. Now, frankly, organized religion has not allowed God much freedom. There is both consciously and unconsciously a lot of resistance to the theological and religious implications uh, that are to be gained from what I refer to as the new cosmology. And if you go back and read Rohr's meditation for today, you will see this is exactly what he is talking about. In, in light of what we are learning about the energy field that we are a part of, our pre-Copernican understandings of God have got to go. Now, I'm not bragging when I say this. I've got a major from a great university in psychology and religion. I've got a doctorate in theology. And all through that time, I was taught that we could understand God. And we had really important, big-sounding words to describe God. God was he, always a he, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, immutable, holy, righteous, sovereign, loving, merciful, and angry, judgmental. And then in one of the pivotal periods of my life, I did postdoctoral work at Harvard, I always try to impress people with that. It never works, but it's just a throw that in there. And, and I studied under Gordon Kaufman, who was at that time, I doubt anybody in this room has heard of Gordon Kaufman, but he was one of the most respected theologians you have. One of the most respected theologians um, in, in the United States, and his specialty was God. And he was a Mennonite. And he taught at Harvard for 30 years, wrote a big shelf of books. And he was way ahead uh, of his time in encouraging his students not to use the word God. Instead, use the word creativity. When Michael Morewood came here, and we're working to get him back this, this next spring, one of his main points was to ask, what do you imagine when you use or hear the word God. And where did that what you imagine come from? Where did you learn what you learn about G-O-D? Now, 
If you walk in most any church in America today, certainly those that bear the label evangelical and propose that we stop using the word God, you would be asked to leave or you would be shunned in some other way. Religion is built boxes in which to contain God. And this understanding grew out of, in the Jewish tradition, a time when God really did live in a box. God lived in the Ark of the Covenant. And then that moved into the temple and God lived in the Holy of Holies. God was there. And for most people, God is still in a box. And not only that, but also for most people, reflexively, our understanding of God is more like Santa Claus. He, I said this is always a he, God, is making a list and checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty and nice. And the good children are going to get rewarded with toys. That's heaven. And the bad children are going to get lumps of coal, except it's burning. It's called hell. (laughs) Folks, there is no good news in that. And so one of the main things Jesus did in his ministry was to upset people's notions about God. God wasn't on the side of the rich and the powerful. One of the most radical teachings Jesus ever gave was, it rains on the just and the unjust. This is contrary to Jewish teaching. Except Dr. Kaufman said that the just get wetter because the unjust have stolen their umbrellas. He was an amazing man. The next most radical thing Jesus said was love your neighbor. That's already in Jewish law, but Jesus redefined who was the neighbor, and people didn't like it. To which Jesus said, I didn't come to smooth things over. I came to cast fire on the earth. Now, there is no doubt, there's no historical doubt, this is in the records, this can be documented, that Jesus and his early followers were what we would call pacifist. The idea that during the first 300 years, anyone in the Jesus movement would pick up a sword and go to battle was unthinkable. But we live in a culture where if you say you're a pacifist, people will think you're a coward. Richard Rohr says there is no quicker way to thin a crowd out at a church gathering than to talk about peace and justice. And it's true. Talking about the peace that passes all understanding and the justice of God is what got Jesus killed. So I'm going to read you Jesus' first sermon. It's very short. God's Spirit is on me. I've been chosen to preach the message of good news to the poor and to announce pardon to prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the burdened and battered free, and to announce this is God's year to act in the sermon. Now, you know what they did to him after that sermon? They passed the collection plate and raised a lot of money and bought him his own private jet. No, they threw him out of the synagogue. This is in the record. 
They banished him from the village. They took him to a mountain cliff at the edge of the village to throw him to his doom. I'm quoting from Luke's narrative here. But he gave them a slip. He was on his way. Now, what happened to the movement? Well, the church got in bed with the Roman Empire. And it's been there ever since. The great concepts in Judaism that Jesus reclaimed and redefined on grace and forgiveness and especially justice gradually got controlled and shaped into formulas and techniques. Empires cannot afford much mercy and forgiveness, certainly not justice. So these things became concepts and doctrines to argue over rather than spiritual realizations that were to be put into practice. Disobedience or disloyalty were seen as the big sins of the church, and, not a fa- and, and a, it was not that sin was a failure to show love or, or mercy or to serve. And soon, the work of the paid clergy, um, what did Morewood call us? Staff? Part of the management plan, didn't he? It became what it was in Judaism. Sin management. Church became a worthiness attainment system rather than a transformation system. Clergy weighed sins and measured out punishment. Who said was, who said was in and out? How long you had to stay in purgatory? Church even thought up purgatory to make it a little less bad than hell, but someplace you still had to go. None of this would make any sense to Jesus, who went about telling those the religion of the day had condemned as absolutely unworthy that they were not only already in, but they were sitting at the head of the table. I said in a sermon that I gave here back in March, which is still can be heard on the Ordinary Life, I mean on the church's website, you can go and listen to it, called a Fidget Spinner Faith. I said in that sermon that um, in the, if I have one thing that I want to be remembered for in the 30 years that I've taught here, um, it would be the, the notion that God is not up there. God is not out there. That would be the one thing, the main thing. God's here. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have to clean up your act. Because the second thing I want to be remembered for is the absolute fundamental assurance to everyone here that you are absolutely okay. People have been taught by the church to feel so much shame and so much guilt and to feel so bad about themselves. And Jesus would not tolerate that. Now, our job is to love each other like that. And folks, that might be inconvenient. Face it, I'm not calling anybody out here, but if you don't have a daily spiritual practice, (laughs) no, seriously, if you don't, the reason you don't is it's not convenient. And Jesus said, you don't think I came to make this convenient, do you? This is going to cost you your life. Straight is the way, narrow is the gate, 
And yes, there's nothing to be frightened about. So what does it mean? What might it mean to keep people free for God? Uh, a few years ago, there was a fad, and people who got into it wore bracelets on them that said, WWJD, what would Jesus do? My bride suggested that we produce a bracelet that said on it, W-W-A-G-U-D. What would a grown-up do? <laughs> Keeping people free for, for God is, is a disturbing thing, and we don't like to be disturbed. Nobody likes to be, feel criticized. Nobody wants to be judged. Nobody wants to be made to feel bad. That is not my purpose here. Maybe to challenge, uh, to help us see and embrace with compassion what is truly going on in the world because we can't change anything if we don't first know what it is. And that is we embrace the suffering. In my own spiritual practice, <clears throat> I have some things I, I read every single day. The first one is, uh, I am profoundly grateful to be alive. All right? I mean, think how blessed your life is. I won't go into that now, but just I'm profoundly grateful just to be here. And, and written right under that, I have the things that I think I need to be working on. There's six words, clean up, grow up, and wake up. I don't care how old you are, you still got some growing to do. And, and I have this uh, where I can see it on a, on a regular basis. I think it's an interesting game to play. You know, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus say to us if he were here? What would Jesus tell us about the crisis at the southern border, how to handle it? What would Jesus say in the face of the mass shootings? we experience in this country almost every day. What would Jesus say about the broken medical system? Well, he gave free health care, so you couldn't count. I wouldn't ask him that. So, <clears throat> Last Sunday, I told you about going to the Benedictine Monastery of Silos and the one where the monks sang evening prayer, and uh, that was on a Sunday afternoon. We were staying in Burgos, Spain, and uh, that morning... Sherry and I went to the cathedral because, um, and the Burgos Cathedral is one of those uh, places, again, that's considered a world heritage site. Um, we went early because we wanted to be there for the noon Eucharist service because we had been told that that service is going to be a sung service, and I, I wanted to be there for that. The cathedral itself was closed in uh, preparation for the Festival of St. James. You know, the Santiago Way is the way of St. James, the Camino. Now, the James, just by the way, in case you don't know, the James in question here uh, is the brother of John in the New Testament story, the first two disciples that were called by Jesus, James and John. And these were the guys who later on in the story went to Jesus and said, hey, is it okay when you come into your kingdom uh, if we sit one on your right hand and one on the, your, your left hand? I mean, got to give it to them. You're never going to get it anywhere if you don't speak up for yourself. <laughs> and so they were right there. So this mass is going to be held in a side chapel 
of the cathedral. Now, I don't know what image comes to your mind when you hear the word side chapel. Um, <clears throat> this side chapel was bigger, is bigger than the entire cathedral at St. Paul. This is side chapel. So you can imagine what the cathedral was. It was enormous. And we were among the first people to get there. Now, eventually, this service would have standing room only. Everywhere we went seemed to be that way. So I'm sitting there looking around at this gold-encrusted frontispiece. And a guy came in and sat beside me. Um, he kind of smelled a bit. His clothes were a bit unusual. He's what I would call swarthy. And he turned to me and said, pointing to this, he said, what do you think of that? And I looked at him and knew immediately I was looking at Jesus. And uh, I stammered and uh, finally said, well, what do you think of it? And he said, I think it's wonderful. I, 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 it's really not my religious belief to have stuff like this. I'm Jewish, you know. But I think it's wonderful. Just think. If the church has the money to do this, there must be no homeless people in Spain. No poverty. This is wonderful. And acting like the infantile person I can sometimes be, I said, well, actually, I wouldn't know about that. I'm not from around here. <laughs> I knew because we had to step over beggars to get in the cathedral. I knew. I said, I'm not from around here. And he said, oh, that's right, you're not. You're from Houston, Texas, aren't you? I said, how'd you know that? He just looked at me. He said, I understand you have a professional baseball team that's doing pretty good. I said, well, I'm not really into baseball, but I think that's true. He said, I'm not into baseball either. I'm a hacky sack guy. <laughs> but what I understand is that your team just acquired a new pitcher. And I understand they're going to pay him around $30 million a year. That's just wonderful, don't you think? I'm against ropes now. I said, it is? <laughs> he said, well, of course. That must mean that no child in Houston, Texas ever goes to bed hungry at night. If you got that kind of money. And I said, well, I, 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 I really wouldn't know about that. And he said, come on, of course you do. And when I looked up, he was gone. It reminded me of a cartoon that one of you sent me this last week, which shows an obviously gay sheep going into a church and is told, sorry, you're not welcome here. So Jesus leads him out and those left behind say, where'd Jesus go? Now we're going to deal with the signs of the time next week. But these two questions, the one that we're looking at today, do you think that I came to make things easy? And don't you know how to read the signs of the time? They go together. Now, <clears throat> if anybody in this room today thinks my remarks have been political, you're right. 
If you think that I am partisan, either I have misspoken or have been misheard because that's not my goal. My goal is to reunite the divided, not to cause separation. But there's no way not to be political. Everything we say or do affirms or critiques the status quo. Status quo is a Latin phrase for the mess we're in. <laughs> to say nothing is to say something. The German uh, theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who gave uh, us the phrase religionless Christianity and who is executed for his involvement in the plot to assassinate Hitler, said, not to speak is to speak, not to act is to act. Now, as you have heard me say many times, I think labels are dangerous. Nonetheless, each of us must do her or his own part to stop our culture of character assassination and petty bickering and learn to read the signs of the time. The soul of our country is at stake. So what I want to say to you is don't go left. Don't go right. Go deep. We need to see conservatism as the anchor of our society and at the same time to see liberalism as the path to a future that's already here and put them together. It won't be easy, but it's essential. Now, I can assure you with every fiber of my being that there are no dualistic categories in sacred mystery. It doesn't mean Jesus didn't get irritated. He sure did. But boy, he had compassion for everybody. A couple of weeks ago, I ended up in here by making contemporary the scene from um, where Peter's in the courtyard. You remember? Peter's in the courtyard, warming himself by the fire. Jesus is inside going through the trials that would eventually lead to his execution. And Peter is the guy that earlier Jesus had said, you know, you're the guy I'm going to build my church on. And so Peter's out there warming himself, and three times somebody came up to Peter and said, aren't you with that Jesus guy? And Peter said, nope, don't know the man. And I implied that sometimes by our behavior, that's what we say. So the trial is over, and Jesus is led out. He locks eyes on Peter. What do you think Peter saw? I know in Peter's place, I would feel awful. But I think what Jesus communicated was, Peter, I love you still. That's the kind of compassion that's going to heal our world. <clears throat> During the, the height of the Vietnamese War, there, there came into our awareness a group of people that were called the boat people. You remember those? These were people who were desperate to escape the horrors of war. And many of them left Vietnam to be victimized by sea pirates who took what little they had left. In one such attack, a sea pirate attacked 
a young girl, 12 years old, and raped her. And when the sea pirates left, she went to another place on the boat, and while no one was watching, she slipped over the side, choosing to drown rather than live in such dishonor. Thich Nhat Hanh, the peace activist, was from Vietnam, and he was giving a talk on compassion as the key to peace. And someone, knowing of this incident, confronted him and asked, how is it possible to have compassion for the sea pirate that raped that young girl? Now, Thich Nhat Hanh didn't at the time know about the new cosmology, but he intuited and so he came up with this phrase called interbeing. We interbe with each other. Everybody, everything is connected to everybody and everything. And so in response to that challenge, Thich Nhat Hanh wrote a poem called Please Call Me By My True Names. Maybe it's a prayer rather than a poem, but the Buddhists don't believe in a God. Now you decide. Do not say I'll depart tomorrow because today I still arrive. Look deeply. I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird whose wings are still fragile, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, in order to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the mayfly metamorphizing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I am also the grass snake, who, approaching in silence, feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a pirate. And I am the pirate my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands, and I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes the flowers bloom, and my pain is like rivers of tears, so full it fills up four oceans. Please, Call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and my laughs at once so I can see that my joy and pain are but one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I will see you here next week. Thank you. Thank you.